First is this. Uh, we've got a long message to get through and probably not enough time, so we're going to go pretty quick. And uh, I have notes printed off. Uh, they're downstairs on a little table. And then also, um, you're probably going to want those. And if you want to print out of this, that's fine. But before I even get into today's message, I'm just going to continue on that same track that I had. And I just want to start with this, right? Um, here's the deal. God created all things. Um, he created the entire universe, the world, and everything that's in it, uh, which means that he created you as well. God has a standard of righteous holiness. The standard is perfection, absolute perfection. He gave us our, ten rules to keep and to follow, of which we have broken. Scripture tells us that all humanity, there is none good, no, not a single one, and that uh, because of our choices, we have turned against those Ten Commandments. Uh, one is, uh, don't lie, and I don't know about you, but I've lied, and uh, don't commit adultery, and you might say, oh, I'm okay there, but Jesus said if you've even looked at somebody with lust, then you've committed adultery with them in their heart, and don't steal, and you say, oh, I haven't done that either. Well, listen, if you've ever taken anything that doesn't belong to you, it doesn't matter the amount of value, then you've sinned against God, and what Jesus in the New Testament has really told us is that sin is anything that we think, say, or do that goes against God's perfect, holy will, and again, like I said, his standard is perfection. And none of us has been able to reach that. Scripture is clear when it says there is none good, no, not one. All have went aside, uh, went astray. All have sought their own good. We have actively sought to turn our backs on God. And so because of that, Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. What we have earned because of our transgression is then death, which means not just physical death. It means eternal separation from God in a real place of eternal punishment called hell. Because just like in this world, if you do something wrong, you stand before a judge who then gives a verdict and a punishment for that uh, offense, like a traffic ticket. So the offense uh, is speeding, and so they give you a punishment, which is a fine. Just like that, we will stand before God someday, and he will dole out punishments according to his perfect standards. And because he is an eternal God, the punishment must be eternal. And so the punishment for sinners is hell. It's a very real place, and it's really a place that you don't want to go, and it's a place I don't want you to go. But the unfortunate part of that is is I can't do anything to stop that from happening. I have no power to keep you out of hell, and neither do you. But God has done something absolutely miraculous and awe-inspiring and amazing beyond your comprehension. And what he has done is even in the state of your fallenness, Even in the state of as you were actively walking away from him, he sent Jesus down, fully God, fully man, Jesus born of a virgin, who then lived the perfect life, obeyed every one of God's perfect standards to the utmost, completely holy. And then that Jesus took the cross. He wasn't put on the cross. He took the cross by free will choice to take your sin, and not just part of it, the entirety of it. But here's the rub. It's not for everybody out there. It's for only those who would actually choose to receive it. Just like grandma's sweater. She can knit it for you. She can wrap it up for you. She can put it in a nice package. She can give it to you on Christmas morning. But if you never choose to wear it, it doesn't change the fact that grandma gave you a sweater. You're choosing not to put it on. 
And so scripture tells us that it's more than just a mental knowledge of saying, yeah, I believe that there's a God. And yeah, I believe that there's a Jesus who died for my sins. What it means and what Jesus continually said is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What that means is instead of pursuing your own self and your own lifestyle and your own desires, that you would turn to Jesus and do exactly what he says, come and follow me. And then every area of our lives, whatever that means, everything from gender and sexuality to what you do on a daily basis to get a paycheck and everything in between, that all of that, whatever that was before Jesus, that you would say no to that and then yes to him. And that you would then put your faith, your hope, your trust in what he has done on the cross. That he, out of perfection, has has paid the penalty. In seminary, they call this um, substitutionary atonement. And what that means is that he was a substitute on your behalf. We've all had substitute teachers. He took your place on the cross. And so he took the full measure of God's wrath on the cross. It says that it was poured out upon him. And he took all of it. And then three days later, because he was perfect, because he was victorious over sin and death, because he was a proper sacrifice in your place, God raised him from the dead because here's the thing, the wages of sin is death. And when there is, when there is no sin, there can be no death. And so Christ was able, because he was fully man and fully God, he was able to fully accept all of your penalty as being human, and yet as a bottomless or, or black hole, you might say, he was able to suck all of that in there and still have room for more. So his holiness was so holy and so perfect that it overshadowed all sin that you have ever committed and will ever commit. But again, he says, you must accept this. And so he says, you must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and then you will be saved. And so the question I have before we begin this at all is, do, and you don't have to answer out loud, but I do want you to answer in your hearts. And if the answer to that question is, I don't know, then, then you need to forget about the rest of what I'm going to say today and wrestle with that. Because none of what I'm going to say matters if you're not saved. And so have you accepted Christ? And if you haven't, I'm going to beg your soul that you would do that today. And if you want to talk more about that, I want to talk more about that too. I don't care if it's 2 o'clock in the morning. I want to talk about that with you. And we need to be a church that's about that business every Sunday, but also every Monday through Saturday. If you want to be a spirit-filled church, we've got to be on a spirit-filled mission. Now let's talk about communication. I want to take you to Ephesians. We've got 20 minutes to do a 30-minute sermon, of which I was already not going to do a 30-minute sermon. So you ready? There's a famous book out there. Um, There's a famous book, uh, aside from the Bible, uh, it's not even anywhere near as good as the Bible, but you may have heard it. It's called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, or vice versa. And that is the truth, because we miscommunicate all the time, but it's not just with men and women. Of course, we're talking about 
relationships because of Matthew 19, of which I'm very excited to get back into Matthew 19 and 20 moving forward next week. So look forward to that. But um, as I am, I hope that you are. Uh, but uh, when we talk about this, there's, there's three main things that people will fight about in relationships. It's, it's sex, money, and communication. And all of which, by the way, are actually communication issues. And all of which then are gospel communication issues because the gospel is not connected to our hearts, which then is connected to our mouth, because out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so then there's either good communication or bad communication. Does that make sense? So now the book of Ephesians in chapter four is where we're going to spend some time, but I do realize that the book of Ephesians has three chapters before that. So if you would like to, and you should want to, I hope, read Ephesians one through three before we get into four and before we get into the section of Ephesians, because you have to take it into context. But we are going to look at Ephesians today. So if you're in Ephesians, that's good. As we go through this, you'll see where we're going. But I want to attach the gospel to our communication, not just our mouth, but to all forms of communication as we look through this. And so I'm going to start in Ephesians 17 through 24. It's not going to be up here, but you can follow along in Scripture uh, as we talk about... uh, Mr. and Mrs. Wrong and their lack of communication, right? So Ephesians 17 through 24, because I want to spend our time today in 25 through 32. So I'm setting the context a little bit for you. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. What is that? That's basically his way of saying those non-believer pagans, right? In the futility of their minds, they are uh, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. They just don't know the things of God. They're not saved, so they don't live like saved people, right? Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, uh, to practice every kind of impurity, Uh, but that is not the way you learned Christ, exclamation point. That's interesting there, right? So if you have learned Christ, he's saying it's not that way, it's not the way of these non-believers, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And this is what he's saying. So this is what we've learned. This is what we should have learned in Christ Jesus. To put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So as we move forward, and this is a freebie, I'm not even going to probably talk about this moving forward. How many of you have talked with other people and had a miscommunication and their response to why it went poorly was, well, that's just the way I was raised. That's how my dad communicated that way, so that's how I communicate. That's how my mom communicated, so that's how I communicate. And what he is saying right here is, if you are a Christian, stop using that excuse. Because if you're a Christian, you are to put on the new self and have the new self and the old self to be discarded and thrown away. Now, that takes work and that takes pain, and that means that we get to help one another. And in the case of relationships, relationships all, whether it's a married couple, whether it's friends, whether whatever, is the way that we are sanctified. Because I don't know about you, but we irritate each other. I'm sure that's mostly me irritating you, and I'm sorry for that. Thank you for your affectionate grace and mercy towards me. So as we look into today's word, here's where I want us to be, Ephesians 25 through 32, which you can follow along on the screen if you don't have a copy of God's word. Therefore, 
So all that that we just said, right? Because we're new in Christ, because you know the gospel, because you're putting on the new, you're taking off the old. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit for God, uh, uh, of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, this is a tall, tall order. As we look over this list, I am convicted, and I know that these folks listening are too. Put away all of this. Let your speech only be seasoned by that which is edificatious for the time. We will probably all fail at this on the car rides home. So God, we pray that in your power of Christ, you will help change our hearts. Minute by minute, hour by hour. And that as we fail at this, as we sin against you and as against our brothers and sisters, that you would then cause our hearts to seek repentance and restoration. And we would be reminded of this as we seek to continuously be renewed in our mind and in our spirit, putting off the old and putting on the new. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we thank you, as we just talked about a little bit ago, that in your Son, Jesus Christ, you have paid for all of these offenses. And at the same time, Paul saying, let that not give us reason to then continue in offense that grace might increase, but rather let us with loving hearts be drawn to that perfect image of Christ, seeking to be Christ to those around us in every aspect, especially in our words that we speak. In this name of yours we pray. Amen. So the first point that I have for this in communication is simply this. Just be honest. Be honest. So many times we try to mess around with other things because we're just unwilling to be honest. You've heard of a fishing story, right? And sometimes we try to tell fishing stories even to other folks, but the fact is is that is not honest. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So we must put off falsehood. That means outright deceit. Lying is off the table. You have to tell the truth. Also, maybe you didn't think about this, but keeping secrets that should be told to your spouse or to the others in relationships. Now there's there's right secrets and there's wrong secrets. Now, for the life of me, I can never keep a birthday secret. I don't care what it is that I buy. She always finds out what I buy for her. I've, I've, even, I've even asked her mother, my, my mother-in-law, to buy something on her behalf, and still, somehow, Elisa will figure it out. But all secrets that are inappropriate, and you know the ones that those are, That is falsehood. That is deceit. Or how about exaggerating at inappropriate times? This is that idea of the fishing story, right? Or, and I think this is often probably a female offense, although we can be guilty of this too, nonverbal and verbal communication that match. 
And I say that's mostly female because if any man in here who has ever asked a woman, how are you? And she says, fine, but she's not fine. And then you have to weigh, do I deal with that or do I just take her at, at because I know she's not fine. So do I probe or do I just say, you said fine, you're fine, I'm fine, let's keep driving, right? Depends on how long the car drive is, right? If it's a three-hour car drive, you say, you said fine, I'm fine, radio. Anyway. But we have to put away all falsehood. We have to speak the truth. We must speak the truth. We cannot solve issues unless we express them. As much as you might think that, ladies, we cannot read your minds. And men, they can't read yours either. So if you're unwilling to tell the truth, then how can the problem be dealt with? And by the way, praise God that we can't read minds. I mean, can you imagine if whatever thoughts you already thought this morning were put on this screen for everybody to see? And so we can't have assumptions either. Because assumptions are on the other side of telling truth. That's not honest either because we're just assuming. 1 Corinthians, it's not up here, but 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, uh, Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So he says in the text, why should we be honest? Because we're members of one of another. Which means also not in the, only in a relational, intimate relationship context, but also in this context here. We should be able to be honest with each other. And it says in the context of love, Ephesians 4.15, a little earlier, it says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. If, if, now, that's not, uh, that, that, uh, put a pin in that, because that's probably the main verse for this entire sermon. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That would sum up this entire sermon. Second point, we're doing good. Biblical anger and keeping things current. Now, this is a twofer, because I didn't know exactly how to slice it. So I apologize for that. Ephesians 26 through 27. So biblical anger and keep current, if you're a note taker. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. Be angry and do not sin. And some of you, I'm going to explain how that's possible here in just a minute. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So here's some things about sinful anger. Sinful anger always prevents intimacy and oneness. And I don't just mean sexual intimacy. I mean any kind of relational intimacy. Sinful anger precludes that. Sinful anger is always a hindrance to any kind of communication. And sinful anger robs God of his glory that is due to him. I think that, if the other two aren't good enough, that should be the number one reason why we as Christians should seek to avoid sinful anger. It actually robs God of his glory. It's a very brief explanation of this, but sinful anger can be classified as this. Any anger that you feel over person, place, thing, situation that isn't directly tied to God's word or God's glory. If God's word and God's glory is at stake, then that is righteous anger. If it is not God's word and God's glory that is at stake, then chances are it's probably sinful anger. So what does righteous anger look like? Righteous anger actually reacts against actual sin. So you are angry because of actual sin that has been perpetrated. 
And I would even go farther to say that as we grow in maturity, righteous anger is, is anger against sin that has been perpetrated. But even as David, uh, I think it was David said that, uh, that the sin isn't against him, but it's against God. All sin, and so scripture teaches that all sin is ultimately against God. You might be affected by that, but their sin is not ultimately against you. It's against God because God has given a command and they have not done that command. And so because they haven't done that command, it affects you. Righteous anger also is, it focuses on God and his kingdom, his rights, his concerns, and not your own. And then lastly, righteous anger, when, uh, when it's accompanied by other godly qualities and expressed in godly ways, and maybe that's the most important, secondly, of those two things. It concerns God and his glory, his, his word, his, his character, sin against him. And then secondly, how we respond, if it's righteous anger, we will respond in a way that is also God-honoring and God-glorifying. So what's sinful anger look like? Do we need to really talk about that? It flows from selfish motivation. It's characterized by talking instead of listening. Uh, When it attacks the person, not the problem, it is an occasion to speak rashly and harshly. And when you brood over the failures and hurts of others, or it's accompanied by other sinful tendencies. I told you we were going to go through this fast. Don't worry, I can print this off for you if you want or send you an email. So some ways to keep ourselves from falling into sinful anger are things like this. Firstly, honestly acknowledge the emotional component of your anger. Because it says in the text, be angry and do not sin. So he's not saying never be angry. And he's not saying all anger is sin. God didn't design you to be robots, so please don't pretend like you're a robot. Acknowledge your emotional component of anger. Secondly, carefully evaluate your thoughts and replace false deceptive thoughts with ones that meet biblical criteria. I know that's a mouthful, but what I'm saying there is examine your motives and examine your heart. Ask yourself in the moment of anger, which is difficult to do, so you'll probably have to do it later and then repent, and then hopefully over time as you continue to pray that God would continue to change you, that this will become more and more, and over time he will change you because he has said in his word that he will. But carefully evaluate your thoughts and replace them, these deceptive ideas, with ones that are biblical. Uh, Philippians 4.8 might be one. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence in any of these things, think about those things. Next, carefully evaluate your desires and replace false idols for worship and obedience of the loving God. I tell people this all the time. A fight happens when you have two people who are serving two different gods. Every time. The fight will happen with me and my wife when she is serving the God of Elisa and when I serve the God of John. A fight will also happen if I'm serving God and she's serving the God of Elisa or if she is serving God and I'm serving the God of John. But a fight always happens when people are serving two separate gods. The real God or the little G God of the idol of the heart. Guard your words and actions and withhold any response until you are certain that it will please and edify, please God and edify others. Who's, who's, a, who's a talker than a thinker? That's me, for sure. It's part of the gift of gab, I guess, but also one of my biggest faults and failures. 
Things will come out of my mouth before I have even processed it. I need to, if you're like me, we need to seek to guard our words and actions until we are sure that they will edify others and please God. Keep reminding ourselves of uh, the patience that you have with others, whatever you're angry about, keep reminding yourself that the patience that you are seeking to give to them pales to the patience that God has given you. Cry out to the Redeemer for grace, strength, wisdom, and seek to use your anger in a godly way. And then lastly, when you fail, repent and confess this to others. So what do I mean by keeping things current? So that's biblical anger and how it's used rightly. What do I mean by keeping things current? He says here in the text, as you look at it, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You see, anger is a lot like fruit flies. Issues that we deal with are a lot like fruit flies. Right now in our house, we have fruit flies because we went out picking apples. We're bringing in our tomatoes and all the things from our garden. And so we've got fruit flies galore. Now, what do you know about fruit flies? Those suckers are prolific, okay? I find one single fruit fly one day, and then the next day there's like 35, okay? I'm in the bathroom brushing my teeth, and there's fruit flies. I'm in the kitchen. I'm in the kids' room. There's fruit flies everywhere. So if you do not deal with the situation when it's time to deal with the situation, guess what? More situations. Deal with the fruit flies when they come in and deal with the problems when they arise, Do not let the sun go down on your anger because otherwise you are giving an opportunity to the devil. Use your anger that you have to solve today's problems today. Now that's not giving you guys excuse to go out in the parking lot and then say, see, pastor told me that you need to give an answer for X, Y, and Z, whatever that we've been dealing with over the last week. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when we fail to communicate, What we are doing is we're giving the devil an opportunity to tear us apart, to tear us down, and to bring bitterness and all these other things that it's talking about that we shouldn't have. We're going to speed it up a little bit. Here's some ways that we often cut that off. And again, I'm going to be stereotypical, but generally, women, you cut communication off because you cry. And what we do is we say, ah, okay? We don't say that out loud unless you're me and I'm a weirdo, okay? But most guys, that's what we say internally. Guys, how you generally shut communication down is you threaten to explode. I can't handle this anymore. If you bring up this one more time again, uh, you kick the tire, you throw the wrench, or you do whatever, and you put on this show that if she continues down this path, she's going to regret the conversation that's going to ensue. Both of us shut down communication I guess all of us could do this, but generally those are the two. Uh, Both of us shut down communication with bottom line statements. Well, the only thing I have to say is this. And so that's the end of it. That's the bottom line. Or lastly, we often both do this too, leaving the room or the home. I'm just not going to deal with this. I'm going to walk out and I'm not going to deal with this anymore. And you're just going to be left to yourself and good luck communicating with nobody. Those are communication breakdowns and those are sins. Why? Because we're not obeying this. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sin go down in your anger and you're giving opportunity to the devil. Stop it. So instead, deal quickly. Matthew 5, 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to, uh, with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. 
Now, hopefully, you're not having such blowout fights that somebody's going to be going to prison. That is not my prayer for you. But the fact is, is that we are commanded to deal with things quickly. So here's some questions to ask yourself before you bring up a problem. One, are my facts right? Do I have the right facts? Proverbs 18, 13. If somebody gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame. Secondly, should love hide this? Not everything that you're angry about needs to be discussed. First Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Is my timing right? Is my attitude right? Are my words loving? And maybe most importantly, have I prayed yet? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so before you get into an argument with somebody, you're going to assume that you know their heart and their motives and their reasons behind it, and you're going to assume that your heart is pure and holy and right without even bringing it before God in prayer? Proverbs said that is folly to you. So the third point. Third point is attack the problem. Attack the problem, not the person. So often our communication and our fights or our miscommunication starts to degrade into the, well, this is what's the problem with you. Well, okay, but what is the original problem to begin with? Let no corrupting talk, Ephesians 4, 29 through 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know, if you say that you are a brother or sister in Christ, and you are attacking the person, you are attacking someone who has been created in the image of God. And you are using your mouth to curse when your mouth was given to you to bless. Ephesians 4.29 says, don't let this kind of corrupting talk even come out of your mouths. Instead, you're supposed to answer what is good for building up as what fits the occasion. And he doesn't say here, only unless you're talking about your spouse not picking their socks up out of the living room floor. It doesn't have that caveat. And so we need to avoid unwholesome words, words that attack the person's character, words that tear down, words that rip apart and hinder growth, words that confuse the discussion and bypass the conflict, and words that grieve the Holy Spirit. There's all kinds of scriptures in here, Matthew, James, Proverbs, about guarding our tongue. James, maybe the most famous one, talks about how the small member is a, sets ablaze a great forest because it's such a small fire. And so we are to use encouraging words, words that fit the need, solution-oriented words and actions. We need to attack the problem and not the person. And then lastly, we need to act and not react. Act, don't react. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we need to guard against sinful reactions because uh, that is a, that is, if we're not guarding against them, then we're reacting. So instead we need to act to make sure we are putting off the old self, putting on the new self. So guard against these sinful actions, bitterness. He has them listed right there. Bitterness, which is a state of resentment, a desire to think and treat someone according to evil. Bitterness is anger left undealt with. Bitterness is what grows in the heart if we have continued to give opportunity to the devil over a period of time or over a situation. Wrath. Wrath is intense anger normally resulting in a passionate outburst. I use passionate, I guess, Pretty loosely here. Anger. We're all kind of familiar with that, but this is uh, seated, indi- uh, uh, this is indignation that often seeks revenge. I don't know if you knew this, but in the Greek text, these are all different words. That's why we're doing this, right? And that's why they're different words up here. But in our Western society, we don't, we don't talk about clamor very much or wrath, or those kind of things. Those kind of are ambiguous terms. So clamor. Clamor is loud screaming and shouting. Slander, profane or abusive speech, name-calling, cuss words. Malice, wickedness in the form of a sense of desire to actually harm the other person. Now this can manifest itself in physical abuse, but often it remains in the heart and it's just, man, I really wish something would happen. And what he's talking about here is we need to guard against our natural tendencies here. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind. So instead, so those are the put-offs. Put off those things. Be aware that those things are in your heart and cut them out and throw them away. And instead, seek to apply godly actions and attitudes. Kindness. Uh, a helpful courtesy to others, tender-hearted, compassionate, sympathetic, and affectionate, forgiving, a willingness to pardon the repentant, guilty person from moral liability and working towards reconciliation. I know that's a mouthful too, but let me simplify it for you. If you claim to be a Christian, Jesus has forgiven you on the cross more than you can possibly even begin to imagine. We all have our own little pet sins that we think about. When, when I say Jesus has forgiven you, you uh, to your mind, something comes up right away that you're like, yeah, I feel really bad about that. I'm glad God has forgiven me. You don't even know the half of it. And, I, and I'm not judging you. I'm telling you this is why some Sundays I cry up here. Because I think to myself, I can't believe that not only would you save me, not only would you save me, but then that somehow in your wisdom, I get to stand up here and talk to people about you. And so when you're in an argument, are you coming at it with a forgiving spirit, understanding that whatever offense that this person has perpetrated against you, and I understand that there are some serious offenses in this room. I get that. I get that, and I'm not belittling that. What I'm saying is, who do you think you are before a holy God who has ultimately been offended against? And if he sends his son 
to take their punishment that we just talked about earlier this morning, if he is willing to forgive them should they repent, then who in the world do you think you are? So here's how I would close. Do you see where communication in and of itself is connected to our understanding and our living out the gospel in our own hearts and how communication affects how we deal with finances? Communication affects how we deal with intimacy. Communication affects how we deal with parenting. Gospel and how we see others and how we see ourselves and how we communicate that is what makes Mr. and Mrs. Wrong have relationship killers. The relationship killer for Mr. and Mrs. Wrong isn't that they are Mr. and Mrs. Wrong because truthfully, I believe that there is no such thing as Mr. and Mrs. Wrong. And there is no such thing as soulmates. Now my wife, I do not want any other woman and I believe she was perfectly created for me. And I also believe that any man in this room who is currently married can say the exact same thing of their wife and any wife of their husband. Because God does not make mistakes. We do. And so however you got into your marriage, it was not a mistake. God placed you there. And he placed you there primarily, and this might be a shocker to you, primarily not for your happiness or for your sexual gratification or for the production of children. All those are good things. God placed you in a marriage primarily so he could make you more like himself. And so he could sanctify you. Because now you get to spend every single day with another sinner, just like you. And you get to learn these characteristics and how to be more like Christ to that person every single day. Aren't you happy for marriage, right? And so when you talk to the little old couple and they say, you know, how did you stay married for so long? And they'll say something like, oh, just one day at a time. Or, you know, we just, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of work to it or whatever. They're not lying to you. There's no secret sauce. It's the gospel. It's remembering who we are, who Christ is, what he's done for us, and then treating others according to that, the gospel. So whether it's connecting the gospel to your pocketbook or your bedroom or your mouth, all of that. And so because I don't want for you guys to act like this, then we're going to close in a word of prayer before you guys start uh, being upset with me too. So let's, let's pray. Uh, please join with me. God, our Father in heaven, we, we do confess to you our need for you. So often, so often, we open our mouths before we think. We act in anger that is not righteous, but rather is sinful. We are so prone to have idols of our heart. In fact, there has been a theologian that said our heart is actually a factory of idols, producing a new idol every day. And so, God, we pray that by your mercy and your grace that you would help us to connect the gospel to our finances, to our bedroom, to our mouths, but most importantly, to our hearts. Because when it is connected to our hearts, it will change who we are, what we say, how we think, what we do. And we praise you that you have guaranteed us that your word does not return to you void, but rather it has its full purpose. And we thank you for the church that allows other brothers and sisters to help keep us accountable and hold us to these glorious standards that you have made. 
So God, we call out to you knowing that it is your will that we would uh, reveal your glory, be made manifest more like your son so that there would be more image bearers that would properly show this world who you are so that you would receive that much more glory from all of your creation. So it's in your name that we pray that we might be better at this. It's in the name and the power of your son. Amen. Let's stand and sing.